Well, um, we're continuing our, our Advent series here. Uh, we're in John chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 18 today. I've been walking through the last few weeks anyway, uh, the, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, and we'll continue there today. Um, I'm going to share a number of things with you, and then I kind of want you to think about what these might have in common. They're a little bit personal. Um, the first one is the 1998 world champion New York Yankees, right? Not just the New York Yankees in general, but the 1998 world champion New York Yankees, who finished that season, counting the postseason, with 125 wins and only 50 losses, right? 75 games above 500, right? I say the greatest baseball team ever put together. And you'd have a hard time arguing against that, except maybe with another Yankees team. But um, incredible, incredible team. It's special to me because of of how great they were, the record that year. Um, It was in the middle of, uh, well, the first of three World Series in a row, four in uh, five years, and and like in the middle of a run where they won like 14 consecutive World Series games even. It was was a great time to be a Yankee fan for sure. Uh, That was the first year I ever got to go to Yankee Stadium as a Yankee fan, so it was a special year, but but a truly, truly great team. Uh, Another thing that is kind of special to me, um, Wilco is my favorite band. Many of you know that. But seeing them perform live is like taking it to a whole nother level. Like if you listen to your music, you should appreciate it unless... You just have bad taste in music. Um, but like to see them live, to see that whole band, I mean, Nels Klein on lead guitar is phenomenal, right? And especially watching them play Handshake Drugs, one of my favorite songs, don't judge, uh, as well as, uh, you know, Impossible Germany, and, and just watching them play is incredible. Bacon. I don't need to say anything else, do I? Bacon. Um, the, the current seven-game win streak of my Kansas City Chiefs, my hometown where I grew up, right? Seven games after starting one and five, pretty great. Uh, my wife's delicious sugar cookies, amazing, amazing, amazing. Uh, Bloomington in the fall is not beautiful, or, or, you know, sometimes at this time of the year, we're like, Bloomington at Christmas break ain't too bad either, right? It's nice and quiet. Uh, we're going to enjoy some peace for a few weeks. We love our students, but it's a quiet time that, that we also enjoy. Um, watching watching uh, Steph Curry shoot a basketball. Uh, any, any basketball fans? I mean, we are in Indiana, right? Watch that man shoot a basketball is, is something uh, pretty breathtaking. Uh, Mother Bear's Pizza. You'll notice the theme. There's a lot of food in here. Uh, there's a reason. Um, uh, going to Chocolate Moose on a hot summer day. Uh, Star Wars. I just saw the new Star Wars yesterday. Star Wars, right? What do these things all have in common? Well, they're things for me that I would say are glorious, right? They are glorious. Like, they're filled with glory. When I kind of think about them, that, that's kind of how I would describe them, right? I would say, glorious, right? They're amazing. They're beautiful, great things that I appreciate, and I would say that. But, but really, when you think about it, compared to how the Bible describes and uses the word glory, it seems like kind of calling those things, as great as they might be to me, or the things that you might think of, lists that you might come up with, as great as those things seem to us, it kind of seems like calling those things glorious is a little bit like settling, right? A little bit like settling for kind of shadows, and, and uh, of shadows of what is truly glorious, right? There's a truer glory, is what the Bible gets at, right? A greater glory to behold than anything we can look at and say, that's beautiful, that's, that's great, that's amazing, right? There, there's a greater glory 
to behold something with far more beauty, far more splendor, something far greater, far more magnificent, not shadows of it, but the real thing, the real substance, the glory of Christ, right? The glory of Christ. That's, that's the real glory that our hearts long to behold. It's the, it's the real glory that we long to just see and just be enamored by, be moved by, to be transformed by. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, if you open your Bibles, John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Let's sing it together. Let's hear from God's word. It's on page 886 in those uh, black ESV Bibles on your row. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for this time to gather together, to to celebrate, to think on the the glory of Christmas, the glory of your son. Lord Jesus, we, we, we thank you that you became man, that you lived, that you died, that you became sin in our place, that you would close the gap that stood between us and God. Thank you for coming to rescue us. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we, as we walk through this passage today, that you would open our hearts to behold the glory of Christ, to behold and be transformed, uh, to become better uh, reflectors of that glory in our own lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. John's point here is that in seeing and encountering Jesus Christ, we have beheld glory, right? We, we, we have beheld glory. Not a shadow of glory, but glory in its fullness, right? The fullness of what it is. But again, because we attribute that word glory to so many things, we kind of lose like what that means. We kind of, I think sometimes, again, don't really grasp what it means, the, the glory of Christ, because we've, we've lessened, right? We've lessened a little bit of the normity. I like to call the Yankees, as much as I love them, glorious, really, right? Uh, you're, you're like, yeah, exactly, but, but uh, the, you're Yankee haters. But uh, Bloomington in the fall, beautiful, you know, the mountains in Colorado, whatever it might be, right? To call that, like, glorious in some way, like, compared to the glory of Christ, it kind of lessens a little bit what that word even means for us the wonder of what it means to encounter the fullness of glory in, in the person and work of Jesus. And my hope is that as we dig into this passage, we might get like a wider view of, uh, a, a wider view of the glory of Christ and be moved to respond, to be better image bearers, to be better reflectors, mirrors of that glory to the world around us and that we would respond just in worship, in awe of our King of glory. We first see here the glory of Christ becoming flesh, right? Verse 14. And really, we read through this passage, and we'll, we'll touch on parts of it, but we're going to really focus in just on, on verse 14 for the most part. Um, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace 
and truth, right? The word became flesh, right? The word became flesh. This is glorious. This is glorious. This is miraculous. Like this is, this is the miracle, right? C.S. Lewis called uh, this the grand miracle, right? It, it is the miracle, right? The incarnation, God in the flesh. That's what the word incarnation means. It means to be in flesh, right? God in the flesh. God becoming man. Now, we talked about the significance of, of what it means that Jesus is the eternal word a couple weeks ago when we looked at the first few verses of, of John chapter 1. Right? It means that Jesus has always been. That he has no beginning, no end. He has always been. He always is. Right? Uh, it means that, that Jesus is God. He's God. Not a good teacher, not a a nice man, not a helpful prophet, but God, very God, right? Uh, The eternal son of God, part of the Trinity, the Godhead, in in perfect community with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit for all eternity. That's, That's who he is, that's what he came from, right? That he possesses all the attributes of God. He's eternal, he's all knowing, he's all powerful, he's everywhere, right? He's sovereign, he's holy, he's loving, he's gracious, he's righteous, on and on and on and on, right? He's fully God, he's fully God. In Christ, God became man. Jesus didn't give up his godliness to become a man either, right? He didn't like shapeshift and become human for a little bit. He, he remained fully God. He possessed all the attributes of God from ev- throughout every moment of his life on earth. Throughout every moment of his ministry, he remained fully God. Yet the word became flesh, Right? This is one of the most profound, most significant statements ever written, ever spoken. Uh, The word became flesh. Uh, um, God became a man. God became man. This this word flesh is is really an interesting word. In the Greek, it stands for the whole person, right? Not just just the meat, but the whole essence of what it means to be a a person, right? The, The frailty, the vulnerability. And he became all of that. God identified us with the, to the point of becoming vulnerable, becoming killable for us. That he would come as one of us, making our own weakness, our own vulnerability, his, his very own. The incarnation is the beginning of really the humiliation of Christ. Not that someone played a joke to humiliate him, but he self-humiliated Right? The self-humiliation of Christ, humbling himself to become born in the likeness of men. Jesus humbles himself to, to come and live as one of us. He humbles himself to be born into poverty, right? Not in a hospital, like not in some nice fancy estate that smells of rich mahogany, right? But to be born in a stable that smells of manure, right? Stinky rotten, nasty, nasty smell in place. Uh, Mary and Joseph didn't have a bassinet. They didn't have a, a pack and play that they brought with them on the trip. No, so they put their baby, the Lord, the king of glory, to rest in a feeding trough, an animal's feeding trough. Jesus comes to us, a newborn baby, the pinnacle of human weakness and dependency. He comes humbly. He humiliates himself to become a man. And the word became flesh. Jesus, who was fully God, became fully human. And this language of becoming has this deep, deep meaning, deep, deep and rich meaning as well. 
Jesus doesn't like shape shift to become a man throughout his life and ministry here on the earth, and then suddenly, like after the resurrection and the ascension, like shape shift back into his like pre incarnate state. No, he remains fully man as well, fully God and fully man. This is a the tense here, the verb becoming here implies a definite and completed action. In other words, there's no going back from the incarnation for Christ. No going back. Jesus will always be Emmanuel, God with us. The word became flesh. God became man. That is glorious. That is true glory. But God went even, even farther. He went even farther than that. You see, the word became flesh. The incarnation refers not only to his becoming man, but to his also becoming sin. God becoming sin. Now, now pay careful attention to what I said. I didn't say that God sinned. I said God became sin, right? Jesus was perfectly without sin. It says in Hebrews that he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He identified, us to the, to, identified with us to that point of experiencing life as we experience it, experiencing the struggles as we experience it, but yet not giving in to that temptation, not giving in to sin. Jesus came to defeat sin, right? You and I are plagued with it. It dwells within our hearts. It doesn't matter like who we think, you know, we look around sometimes and we're like, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good in comparison to this or that struggle. Uh, You know, things are going pretty well. It doesn't matter who you are. We all, every single one of us, are are plagued with sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says that for the wages of sin is death. We all are under judgment for our sin. We're all under the curse of death because of sin. Not someone else's sin, but our sin. Our sin. Your sin. My sin. We have a problem. But we're good at deceiving ourselves, are we not? A blame shifting, like making excuses and, and compare and contrast. Like, I'm doing better than they are, you know, so it's not really that bad. So it's not really that much of an issue for me. We deceive ourselves, and right? we think we're not really as, as bad off as we are. But then we read things like Jeremiah 17.9, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We're deceived by ourselves, the reality is, is that the most dangerous sin to you and to me isn't someone else's sin out there, right? It's the sin in our own heart, right? The sin that fills this room, right? In our own hearts, it's here right now. That's the most dangerous sin to us. And because of your sin, you and I, we are under God's judgment, under his wrath, separated from him. But Jesus came to rescue you. God became man. Uh, see, the, 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 the war on Christmas isn't like the, the red cups at Starbucks without the snowflakes and snowmen, which have nothing to do with Jesus either, um, right? That's not the real war on Christmas. The real war on Christmas is, is thinking that Christmas is not a war, right? It's a war on sin. If, if we fail to grasp that, that the, the manger is really all about the cross, that we don't get to the cross by looking at the manger, then we, we fail to really understand what Christmas even means. 
Jesus was born to die. God became man that he might become our sin and on the cross suffer the judgment and the wrath that you and I deserve in our place. To reconcile us to God, to bridge the gap, to to seal the gap, to cover it for good, to bring us at one with God again. That's the point of the manger. The point of the manger is the cross. The point of Christmas is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, not just being born in Bethlehem. He became your sin. He died the death that you deserve. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Incarnation, not just taking on the nature of man, but taking on the sins of the world so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became your sin that he might pay your debt in full. He might restore and, and bring life in place of death that he might bring restored relationship with God in place of a separation. What, what glory. What glory to behold. Like, it's one thing you think about like a friend, you know, a spouse, being willing to take a bullet for their spouse to die in their place, to, to save their life. But think about an enemy. Right? And we declared ourselves enemies of God. We declared ourselves to be his enemy. We rebelled against him in our sin. We chose to go our own way and say, God, I don't think you've got it figured out. Right? I, think, I think I know better. I think I know better what's right, what's wrong. I think I know better how to live my life. I don't want your way. I don't want your sovereign love and care. I want this, right? I'm gonna go do this. And Jesus came. God sent his only son to be man to be sin, to die, to reconcile his enemies back to himself. That's glory, right? That that is truly glorious. God himself, the eternal word, became flesh. But that's not all. There's, There's more to behold, right? There's also the glory of Christ dwelling among us, right? It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here again, this, this language in the Greek is so rich, so deep. If you're reading in the Greek, which probably not a lot of us in the room read in the Greek, I don't read in the Greek either, I need help, right? Uh, you read it this in the Greek, and you dig into the Greek meaning, the Greek words and the meanings of those words, you see something that you can't see just in our English translation of the, of the Bible, right? John could have chosen any number of different words here to explain what he's talking about. But he, he chose one specifically. He could have said that he dwelt among us, which is what our translations usually say, that he dwelt among us, that he resided among us, that he lived among us, but he didn't use those words. He, he used a very specific word that, that literally means to pitch a tent, is what the definition means. To, he pitched his tent among us, but, but it's even a more specific word than that. What he actually wrote is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Not a word that we use a lot. Uh, why, why does he do that? Why does he do that? Well, he's, he's trying to make a deliberate connection here. A very deliberate connection that, that his readers, his original readers would have made. 
because they were readers of the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, which super common in that day. That's what they would have read. They would have read the Old Testament in that Greek language, and they would have known this word. They would have known it's the exact same word, the same Greek word that's used in the Septuagint to describe the, the tabernacle that was established under Moses in the wilderness following the Exodus. He says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And to make it even more clear than that, he, he continues on and he says, and we have seen his glory. And, th- and this is meant to point directly to this interaction between Moses and God in Exodus chapter 33. And Moses is on the mountain with God, meeting with God, and, and seeking to know God more. He, he longs for this deeper intimacy with God. He's, he's had a taste of God's greatness and goodness, and he's like, I want more. Like, and he says in, in Exodus thirty-three eighteen, he says, please, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory, God. And, and Moses longed to see God's face. He wanted to see his face to behold the fullness of God's glory. And you remember what God said? What do you say to him? He says, I, I can't do that. That would kill you. It would destroy you to see my glory. You, you can't see my face and live. That's what God said. It'll, it'll kill you. And instead, God allows his goodness to kind of pass before Moses. He places Moses in the cleft of the rock and, and, and covers him with his hand so that as he passes by, he, he, won't see, he can't see his face, but he'll maybe just get a glimpse of his back, right? Just a little, a little glimpse, but not his face. That way, Moses could still be breathing and alive, you know, a positive thing. Um, but out of this interaction, out of this interaction that takes place in, in Exodus 33, 34, God says to Moses, here's what we'll do. You, you can't see my glory. You can't encounter it face to face, but let's build a tabernacle, right? Let's, let's build a tabernacle, a great tent that will be my dwelling place with my people. I, I will dwell within the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is where God would meet his people in and through sacrifices offered up, and there would be reconciliation between God and his people there. <clears throat> you know, it's, a, it's a symbol. The tabernacle is a symbol of, of, God's, of God's dwelling among us, his being with us. But God's glory in the tabernacle remained hidden, remained hidden. Like inside the tabernacle, there was the most holy place that was uh, behind the, the veil, the thick curtain that enclosed it. And in the most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant was kept with its golden lid, which was called the mercy seat. And above the mercy seat is the place where the Shekinah glory of God was to dwell, right? Hidden and restricted because God's glory can't be seen. It can't be touched. It can't be encountered just, you know, casually. It must be concealed or, or people die. In Leviticus it says, when you enter into the most holy place, make sure you light a lot of incense and, and stuff in the air so that you're not killed immediately. But the high priest is the only person who could enter that space on one day of the year, the day of atonement. And there was all these ritual cleanings and, and things that he, had, he would have to go to just to be able to enter into that space. But that's exactly the opposite of what John says here in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, Jesus is our tabernacle, right? He's our tabernacle. We don't have to go to a tent. 
We don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to go to a church building to meet with God. We go to Jesus, and we, we meet with and we worship God. We have access, free access. We don't have to go up and offer sacrifices. We don't have to do a bunch of certain things, any number of good works to measure up or clean ourselves up first to approach him. No, we can come forward because Jesus is our sacrifice. The, the one who has made, was made to be our sin and has paid for our sins. Once and for all on his cross, we've been washed in his precious blood. We've been cleansed by him. So we have access to boldly come before God in worship, to come before God the Father through faith in the Son, Jesus Christ, who is our tabernacle and the tabernacle of God among us. But see, Jesus isn't the tabernacle concealing the glory. The glory isn't hidden anymore. Right? It's not concealed anymore, but rather we, we get to see the fullness of it in him. In, in Jesus, we behold the glory that Moses couldn't. Moses wasn't allowed to see, but in Christ, we're free to gaze. Not a shadow of it, but the real thing in fullness. That Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is, his presence and glory. Colossians 1.19, Paul says, For in, in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But there is a, a surpassing greatness and excellence in, in, in Christ as our tabernacle that, that gloriously excels that of the Old Testament tabernacle. For Jesus is, as John says at the end of verse 14, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. If you think about the Old Testament tabernacle, it's, it's more full of law than it is full of grace. It's more full of law than it is of grace. There were, there were shadows for sure, right? allusions toward grace present in the ceremonies and the sacrifices that all ultimately pointed towards Christ as the ultimate and final sacrifice. But still, so much of what happened hinged on obedience to the law. You had to follow this procedure and this procedure and this procedure to, to even carry out the sacrifices and the ceremonies within the tabernacle. But Jesus, he's full of grace. Not just a little bit of grace, but, but the fullness of grace. Grace upon grace in abundance. The Old Testament tabernacle was more full of image than it was of truth, if you will. Image. There were, again, shadows and symbols and pictures of, the, of truth. But Jesus is full of substance, full of substance. As the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, he's not the picture, but the reality. He's not the shadow, but the substance. He's the fulfillment of the tabernacle. He's the true and better tabernacle, if you will. He's the ultimate revelation of who God is. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So what does that mean, right? What does that mean for you and I? It means that Christmas is the end of religion. That's what it means, right? Christmas is the end of religion. Jesus is the end of religion. We have no temple. We have no tabernacle because Jesus is our temple. We, we don't offer sacrifices because Jesus is our sacrifice. We don't have some priest who needs to come and mediate between us and God because Jesus himself is our great high priest. And in that sense, Christianity is kind of no religion at all, is it not? It, it, all the other religions of the world, you think about them, they say, if you do this stuff, if you obey this, you do this, you do that, 
then you will be accepted by whatever the deity is or deities. But not Christianity, not Jesus. What did he say? He says, because of my life, death, and resurrection, through that, through faith in me, you're already accepted. It's finished. It's finished. And because you're accepted through faith in me, therefore, you will do, you will obey. You'll be transformed. We don't come to Jesus. We don't obey and perform and and keep to get his approval. He gives it to us freely because he became man, because he became our sin, because he took our place on the cross, because he defeated sin and death once and for all and rose victoriously over the grave. We have life and acceptance that can never be taken through faith in Christ. When we repent, right? When we turn from our sin, we turn to trust in in Jesus. We have that acceptance and it transforms us. It transforms us. You can't behold his glory and not be changed. You cannot behold the glory of Christ becoming man, becoming sin, living, dying, and rising for you and not be transformed by it. And so you don't do to get, you do because you've met Christ. You've met glory, you've encountered it, and it transforms your life. It makes you want to do, it makes you want to obey. You see the difference? It's the end of religion. In Jesus, we don't get religion, we we get a person. We get a relationship. We get glory, indwelling glory. Let me also ask you this. Why do you think it is that we're able to behold the glory that Moses couldn't? Is it because we're, we're, we're better than Moses? Like we're nicer, we're, we're you know, more put together people? I, don't, I doubt it. <laughs> I doubt it. Right? Moses couldn't see the glory uh, because of the infinite gap that stood between us and God because of our sin. But the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle is the place of sacrifice. So what John is saying is that Jesus is born to die. He was born to die, to be that once and for all sacrifice. He he came to earth vulnerable and killable so that he could pay your debt. And, And that once and for all sacrifice could be made in your place that would close that gap forever. In the Old Testament, the glory of God is like, you know, smoking mountains and pillars of fire. God's a consuming fire. But at Christmas, we see the unmeasurable majesty, the transcendent holiness of God is a baby, has become a baby. Jesus came to us vulnerable and killable, but he also came to us accessible and embraceable. That's why he came that way. He came to close the gap so that the glory of God can come right into your life and renew you, make you new in him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us that we might behold his glory, that you would encounter that glory, be transformed by it, that it would transform all of you. And that's why there's no like halfway with Jesus. There's no like he's, he's a nice ornament in my life that I'll add to and accessorize with. There's no halfway. To behold that glory is to be consumed by that glory. To be transformed by that glory is to be owned by that glory, if you will. To become a slave of it, to live for it, to to give your life for it. To truly be transformed. That's what Christmas is really about. It's not about warm, fuzzy feelings and and cuddling up by the fire, but encountering the life-transforming glory of Christ. 
and being made more and more into his likeness. You know, as we behold, you don't just keep it there. As you behold the glory and you're consumed by it, you become a reflector of it. You begin to, to show it off to others. You begin to reflect it in the way that we love and we serve and we care for our city, for our neighbors, for our own families, for, for people around us. And we reflect and we share and we tell of the glory of Christ. That's our hope. That's our hope. Um, we're going to come this morning, as we do each week, and we, we approach the Lord's table. And as we do today, let's behold the glory of Christ. Let's behold his glory. Let's be transformed and renewed by that glory. To take some time to reflect and, and pray and confess our sins to God. To think on what it means that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right? May we respond this morning with repentance and faith again and again in him. May we behold and be transformed as we come and worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, believers, in just a moment as we continue to sing, you're going to be invited to come forward. Uh, if, if you're up here on this side, you'll come forward up here. And there's also station in the back, right? If you're in the back corner, you can head back there. Three spots to come to. And you come forward and, and share in this meal. We break off a piece of the bread. We dip it in the cup. We offer both juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine. Uh, if you're not a believer in Christ this morning, this is a, this is a meal, a symbol that is significant and, and reserved for believers in Christ. And so as, as believers are coming forward, the invitation is open to you to take Christ, to take Christ in faith. I'll be in the back. Matt will be in the back. would love to pray with you, love to work, uh, visit with you and, and just and, and encourage you in whatever ways we can. And we want to continue just to worship and sing this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to be together. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity just to, to come and behold your glory. May it renew us today. May it not just be an inspiration, but may it be uh, something that, that consumes us, that, that, that takes all of us for you to reflect your glory to the world around us. Lord Jesus, may we, may we celebrate the true meaning of Christmas, this, this, not just this Christmas, but, but every day of our lives, that you became man, that you became our sin, that you took our place and, and gave us life and hope and joy and peace with God, peace with one another. May you make us respond in ways that, 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 that tell others and, and, and care for others in a way that points them to you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.